0: We could have chosen any of the Gospels because all four Gospels give us the story, but I chose Matthew's Gospel from the 28th chapter, and I want you to look at the verses with me. It's ten verses there, very familiar to many of you. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's been raised. Come see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has been raised from the dead, and indeed He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see Him. This is my message for you. I think it's interesting, before we read the rest of that text, embedded in these stories of our faith are sub-narratives. And I think it is incredibly interesting, and we never want to miss the fact that the first witnesses to the resurrection were females. And not only were they the first witnesses, they were the first apostolon, what was later translated apostle, the first sent ones. They were told to go tell a group of men that Christ had been raised. When they got to the group of men, the disciples to tell them, the men did not believe them. They thought that these were literally, it said they thought these were silly women interesting that Jesus picked people that he probably knew wouldn't be believed. Um, And in that is a tremendous lesson throughout the ages. There was a group of men who did not believe a message that they deeply needed to believe and would be comforted by but they couldn't believe because they could not accept the messenger or the medium through which God was speaking to them. Skin color, gender, economic status, academic status, orientation, all the caste systems that we create. Interestingly, men later met the resurrected Christ and when they told the same group of men that Christ was risen, the men believed them. Of course they did. It's an important part of the story and we'll delve into that more momentarily. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came to him, took hold of his feet, worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. These women had cried, no doubt, until they couldn't cry anymore. The long and short of it was their friend, their teacher, their companion had been unjustly accused, he had been unjustly tried, he had been unjustly condemned by a kangaroo court. Scarcely over 30 years old they had watched him ripped from his young life in theirs. A whirlwind of events that included the betrayal by a friend an ultimate heartbreak, cruel mockery, even more cruel torture. The fact is, Jesus was now dead. And there was no framing it, there was no putting it in perspective, there were no scriptures or kind words of friends that could make any sense out of this senseless thing. This was the height of injustice and cruelty and they didn't want it framed. These women had believed in him. These women had loved him. They had supported him, they had followed him, and now their journey with him was seemingly ended. And it wasn't ended with a coronation as they had thought that it would be. It it was ended mindlessly, it seemed, by a crucifixion. An execution they could have never in their wildest dreams have imagined. You have to hand it to them uh, while most of his male disciples fled. Most of His male disciples, most of them fled and hid. The small group of women, bravely and loyally and lovingly and decently stayed, the Bible said, at Golgotha, the place where He was crucified. They not only went there, but they stayed to the bitter end. They stayed through the death rattles. They stayed through the congestive heart failure and the drowning. They stayed with no hospice. They stayed through to the bitter end. Not only did they stay till he breathed his last, but even after that they wouldn't leave. As the crowd began to as the crowd began to go to their places and leave that unsightly thing These women wouldn't leave, they stayed there and they watched as two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they watched as these two men wrestled the gross wrestling and untangling of nails and thorns and they watched as these two men draped his limp and battered body over theirs. And they watched these men carry him to a nearby grave. The Gospel record says even then they wouldn't give up. They watched as the men placed Jesus inside this freshly hewn tomb and then they watched the men roll a large stone across its entrance and then they watched the men leave. But Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Salome, Joanna, maybe one or two other women, they stayed there, they stayed a while and they stared at the stone. I mean there are those times in your life when all you can do is just paralyzed in shock stare at the stones the the sealed tombs in your life. For them it was as if the world had stopped spinning. They sat there paralyzed by shock and grief until finally one of them was arrested and noticed that the sun was going down and Theirs was the custom of always before the Shabbat to 18 minutes before to whatever the farmer's almanac of their day said, 18 minutes before they would light the candles. That 18 minutes was a space of grace to make sure that the observance was done right. There was meals to prepare and a spiritual journey to take as they did every Friday evening. And So as they noticed the sun was going down, they hurriedly and dutifully made their way home for the Sabbath observance but they carried with them the stabbing pain of a loss so terminal and fatal, a loss so ultimate that it could scarcely be described. For the next 24 hours of Sabbath, they were supposed to rest, and while their bodies might have, their brains would have none of it. There was no rest for their minds. Questions raised, doubts raged, grief consumed. How could this have happened to the Messiah? How, how's this happened to a water walker? A guy who raises the dead. How's the next king of Israel who restores the golden Davidic Solomonic period of lore? How, how does it end like this? H- have, have we been terribly wrong about him? Have we hitched our rag- wagon to the the wrong horse have we fed and invested poorly did we unwittingly feed into the pathology of a of a, a good man but a delusional man and, and did our feeding into that delusion cost him his life what, what was real what wasn't real it was all a tangled jumbled mess for them For 36 hours, the 24 hours of Sabbath were two-thirds of those, but from Friday evening to Sunday morning, these women for 36 hours huddled together in this house. The first part of that time when they got home that evening, if there was any space before Sabbath started, they immediately gave themselves to the process of preparing burial spices and perfume for his body. There was no hope of a resurrection, there was no faith in a resurrection, there was simply the decency to tend to a friend's deceased body that's all and yet they tended to his body as they prepared those burial spices they they had to do something you gotta cook you gotta mow the yard you gotta do something so they got home and immediately they gave themselves to this act of preparation he had been hastily buried hastily wrapped in a tomb Nicodemus had brought a hundred pounds of perfume and but it had not been applied properly and he just didn't get the burial he deserved. This was an act of decency on their part. It was an act of love. It may not have been faith in a resurrection, but to tend to the dead body of Jesus was a beautiful act. It was a, it was a custom of theirs for mourning. And maybe more than all of that, it was an exercise in their own healing. Maybe that's why we write those notes and put them in the coffin. Maybe that's why we do these things. And, we take embers out of a fire that has died, and we stoke them, and we blow them, and we light candles of memory. Well, with Sabbath ending after the sunset Saturday evening, the women were forced to wait until Sunday sunrise. There were no streetlights. There was no capacity. You couldn't go during Sabbath, and there was no capacity to go after Sabbath, with the sunset, so the women had a fitful night, no doubt, as they lay beside the spices and the perfumes. They waited until Sunday morning began to break. They waited to go to the tomb and at the first sense that the Sun was coming up, they headed that way. As the four Gospels all concur, as soon as the first light of morning hit, they were there. They probably went in the dark. They just, they couldn't wait. They arrived at the tomb and as I think about it, out of all the people he touched, out of all the people he healed, out of all the people he taught and captivated and mesmerized, out of all of those who called themselves disciples, only these few made it that morning. Ironically, Easter Sunday is our biggest attended day these days, but ironically the first Easter Sunday was not a well attended service. Nobody went the first Easter Sunday except a few women. Just Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and a few more. And you know, it really doesn't surprise me. A couple of things about that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that those who went to the tomb to tend to their pain were the ones who first experienced resurrection. We'll talk about that more. But it also doesn't surprise me that the first people to whom the resurrected Christ appeared were women. And I'm not going to pretend to act like I know with perfect certainty exactly why Jesus chose them. There is something all week long that has struck me about this story and I couldn't wait to tell you about it. Specifically their selection as the first witnesses, their selection as women. There was just something and still yet has a ring of essential truth to it, so I want to explain my logic. In John's Gospel, John takes care to explain, as he often does, elucidating, expanding on the other Gospel writers. John explains that the place where Jesus was entombed, or interred, or buried, the place that they laid him was in the same garden as the place where he was crucified. I don't know if you've ever recognized that, but it wasn't like he died here and they took him a long way, they had a long processional, no it was right there. John describes it as just a stone's throw, You you look at the cross and you turn your head just a few degrees and there's the tomb. John said the reason that he was placed there was the two men who were arrested by what they had seen, Joseph and Nicodemus, both who were called disciples of the night. Two men who had never been able, above the surface of daylight, to follow Jesus openly and honestly, but two men who were taken by him, and two men who followed him in the shadows. This was the day that they stepped out and took his body, and as they were thinking to themselves, they saw the sun setting, they knew they didn't have time, and Joseph, who was a rich, rich man, said, you know, it's, a, it's the middle of town, and this is uh, Jerusalem's main cemetery, and I've got a fresh over here for myself, for my family but we don't have time to go find him one in the beggar's field I'll just let him take mine and so the gospels say that he was buried right beside where he died Hmm. so the point of that is that as the women went to the tomb on that Sunday morning don't miss this The reality is there was no way to visit Jesus' tomb without having to go back to the place of their greatest pain. The only way they could get to the place to tend to their love, their sorrow, their grief, was to walk by the place that they never wanted to walk by again. They had to face their greatest pain to do their love. What is compelling is that on that Sunday morning, while disciples were running and scattering back to their jobs, to their lives, to their towns, these women took the first even scarce modicum of daylight and they used it and they would not allow their fears and anxieties to keep them away. It was the last place they wanted to be and yet it was the place they had to go. They walked by that hill that day quietly, bravely, not allowing their memories and these imprinted images and those sounds and the smells that don't let you go for years. They would not allow their pain to paralyze them. In spite of the difficulty, they literally faced the pain that morning. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but the women who met him first, met him first because they were willing to face down their pain. They leaned into the bitter jaws of this ultimate failure and this dream that had died. They went back to the tomb. And I think, I think their gender is noteworthy here and I want you to indulge me for a moment. Because I want to take care with this because this could, this could go afoul. But I think it's important so indulge me. I believe we're learning a lot about gender these days not just sexuality and orientation, I think we're learning a lot about gender. I think the traditional strictures that are imposed upon men and women, male and female, I think the strictures that are imposed upon behavior and distinctions are being reexamined carefully. I, I think as well the gender binary, that acute gender binary that we have assumed is being constructively challenged. I think we're recognizing that what we have pigeonholed as male attributes and female attributes are overly narrow constrictions that are actually diminishing our identities as human beings. I think not only is contemporary psychology, but contemporary spirituality and contemporary theology are pressing into these matters. I think it is the new frontier for us, not just Christianity, but all religions, all spirituality. I think we're pressing in and we're positing that within the personality of God there is both divinely feminine as well as divinely masculine essence and traits. And it follows then that as we are made in God's image, this is true of all of us human beings. All of us have these characteristics that we have called feminine and masculine embedded within us and the terms male and female are not as synonymous with the terms masculine and feminine as we might have thought. Every human being, since they are made in the image of God, carry within them both the divine feminine and the divine masculine character and characteristics. And for this reason, that's an aside, but for that reason, I am careful not to overplay gender differences that are stereotypical and stilted. To do so, I I believe, is to feed negative processes that need to be corrected, die, and go away, not be nurtured. And yet with that said, There are undeniable distinctions that, at least in certain contexts, do appear between females and males. Some of them, no doubt, may be natural, inherent, beneficial and good. Others, unfortunately, are culturally and systemically generated and need to go away. So with that disclaimer offered and noted, I want to point out that the Gospel record is clear when Jesus came fully to his hour of suffering leave off with the resurrection for a minute when Jesus came fully to his hour of suffering and blood and despair and pain and grief and dying it was his female followers who stayed with him while the men had certainly held prominence during his life and forceful ministry and while his male disciples had observed his power, promoted said power, been enamored by said power, craved said power, while his male disciples strategized about political takeovers and kingdom building, the truth is when Jesus in his final days and hours tapped into nonviolence, when he tapped into non-resistance, when he tapped into acceptance, when he tapped into the pursuit of inner peace, even death, it was in the hour that Jesus went Zen that the women in his life were able to bear it. And this makes sense to me. Because women were and are historically, if not inherently, the bleeding ones. It makes sense to me that they were there because they have always been the penetrated ones, the bearing ones, the ones split wide open by life. Even the mistreated ones, dare we say, the crucified ones. And yet somehow these who were poor, as Jesus said, were also blessed, systemically, sociologically impoverished unjustly blessed jesus said of the poor because grave pain and suffering has a way of wallowing out the souls of human beings blessed jesus said of the poor as father martin our old recovery hero said and wrote a book called blessed are the addicts blessed who are broken open by life blessed are the mistreated The curse of mistreatment is it can leave you bitter and sore and jaded, but the blessing of it all is if you allow it and if you tend to it gently with the antibodies of grace, the IVs that once pumped bitterness and pain into you can become funnels that open you up to a dimension of grace and the divine that no one else can know. So somehow the beauty of procreation, plumbing, biology, physiology and anatomy, somehow the beauty of their slight bodies and great spirits mixed with the disgusting blight of misogyny and patriarchy, and somehow this mixture graciously commingled to create in these women a capacity. While men were running, while men were fleeing, while men were squeamish, these bloody ones, had a capacity to delicately, honorably, decently, and profoundly hold a space for their, (laughs) God, with their slight muscles, they profoundly, Herculean of spirit, Atlas arm of souls, they held space for their friend in his time of suffering. A space that men could neither hold nor fill. Whereas the men fled when their muscle failed, the women without the burden of great muscle pressed in. They were the ones who stayed even to the bitter end of a torturous bloody death. They were the ones who faced the squeamishness of a cadaver. They were the ones who returned to the tomb to tend to a cold decaying body while the men shook themselves and said no. Yes, this gender carries within their bodies a bleeding that creates life and it surely has steeled them for the messiness of death like no experienced men have ever had. To call them the weaker of the sexes is frankly the biblical author's most uninspired moment. But that's not my point. But it was a good one. It's a part of the point. They went that first Easter morning not looking for a resurrection. Please hear me those who are looking for a resurrection. They went that Easter morning bravely leaning in Jeff to their pain. That's all they did. They went that Easter morning facing down haunting memories and tending to the burial of their deepest dreams. They were not looking for a resurrection they were tending to their death. And what they found there that morning as they tended to their pain was something they would have never expected. They went expecting to see a tomb They went expecting to see this rock that was a memorial to their broken past. They went that morning expecting to see a tomb that was a reminder of all their misguided dreams. Those who ran back to their nets, those who went back to their meals, those who went to their bottle or whatever it was, those who could not bear it, drowning themselves in the addictions of food or alcohol or work or sex are just simply denial. Or maybe even theologizing, maybe somewhere they gathered together and discussed the scriptures. But these women didn't do that. They went to pay homage to death. They went to tend to their pain and instead they found a stone rolled away. The stone that they had stared at. The stone of their greatest horror. That stone was now moved, and the place of their pain now had an opening in it. They now saw not the ultimate failure of their life, they saw what appeared to be the liberation of their greatest failure. And to underscore it all, they were met by an angel, who in the middle of their greatest pain, that angel, just as your angels, the better angels of your nature, the soul The depth of the angelic in you. They were met by an angel who told them, listen ladies, Jesus Christ has been raised. And you who have courageously faced your fear, listen, you don't have to be afraid any longer. But the reason you're hearing you don't have to be afraid is because you faced your fear. There are disciples somewhere running as hard as they can from their fears and they have a reason to be afraid. Because crucifixions and failures and disappointments and griefs and woundings and pain are not resolved by running away from them. Ironically, they are only resolved when you run into them. And you who have faced your fear do not have to be afraid any longer. This death This wound, this horror, this memory no longer holds sway over you. But for the poor fellows who thought they could run away from it, the problem is they are taking the crucifixion with them. The problem is they take themselves with them wherever they go. But you have found the way. And then profoundly the angel, instead of looking at them and saying, so what are you doing here? Go, get out of here. Go find the risen Christ. He didn't say that at all. He said, he's somewhere out there. He's alive and you don't have to be afraid. But before you rush too hastily from this moment to underscore the beauty and the wisdom of what you've done here, he took them by the hand and he said, come see the tomb with me." Come see the place where he lay. Where he lay, past tense. But the beauty of the past tense is not simply that he doesn't lay there anymore. The beauty of the statement, the beauty of taking them to that place is the angel was saying, you need to touch this. You need to see this. He really did lay there. This really did happen to you. It happened and it's real and no amount of resurrection and no amount of running can cure the fact that you need to see it. You need to touch it in all of its dark cruelty and you need to see here that it's empty. You need to see here that death has lost its sting. You need to go to the place of your deepest fear because only at the place of your deepest fear, only at the place of your deepest pain, only there is the resurrection really relevant. Otherwise, it's just a theological, metaphysical parable. You need to know that it's empty. You need to step inside of it until you know that it's lost its power over you. Because until you are willing, the angel said, come. He did not say, come see the resurrected Christ. He said, come see the tomb where he lay. Because until you're willing to see it, you cannot see its emptiness and your soul cannot be refilled. You see, on this day, it wasn't just Jesus' resurrection they were experiencing, it was their own. And I hope you see the point of all of this. I'm grateful to be a part of a progressive Christian community, a progressive religious community. I'm grateful that Christianity, like all religions, are beginning to grow up and realize that stories like this should not be childishly reduced to arguments about historicity, literalness, and fact. They are so much more truthful than that. We are growing up and we are recognizing the eternal wisdom embedded in stories like this and we're realizing these are not ancient stories, these are our stories. I hope you see the point that only as they were able to face down their pain and stand down their demons, only as they were able to lean into their disappointment and disillusionment did they meet the miracle of new life. While the other disciples couldn't face the reality that unfolded that weekend in Jerusalem, running as far in the opposite direction of the trial, the scourging, the crucifixion, the lifeless body, the burial, and even the tomb, these women leaned in knowing there was no way around the soul-making process, there was no way around the soul-making process of heartbreak and loss and failure. You have to go through it, you have to face it, you have to see it, you have to touch it, you have to stand in it, and you have to own it. And it's only when you have the courage to do that that new life can come. It's only then that resurrection can happen. That is the true story of Easter. Easter is not just about the transformation of pain. Easter is about the courage to face your pain. Easter is not just about the redemption of failure. It's about your strength, your strength of character and capacity to own the failure. Easter is not just about the healing of regret and grief. It's about the holding of regret and grief. Easter is not just about the relieving of comfort and immediate resurrections. If it were about that, then he would have risen from the grave on Friday afternoon. Easter is about a space of sitting in discomfort, facing it down. It's self-empowerment. It's divine empowerment. You see, what the women found that day and the men also understood was that denial does not open anyone to resurrection. Pollyannic visions don't open anyone to resurrection. Running away does not yield new life. When we run from the harsh realities, from the unfinished business, From the pains and the memories that haunt us. When we run from the Good Fridays in our life, we are taking them with us and we are going away from the place of transformation. The place of transformation is to take your worst. The place of transformation is to take your greatest grief and go to that place that is most sore because that is the place of not only crucifixion, but of resurrection. And I just want to say, as one who has witnessed to this personally, mercifully and lovingly, God, the universe, life, has been set up in such a way that you cannot run forever. I just want to tell you that you can't run forever. Some of you that are at midlife and passing midlife and into your later years, you could say, Amen. You cannot run forever. This is a Christ-making universe and a soul-making world, and I've got to tell you what you can get away with in your teens and 20s and 30s and 40s. Ultimately, this loving God and this loving universe will finally paint you into a corner where the tomb has to be seen and it has to be touched. And only then will the tomb in your life finally lose its strength and become empty. Because it's our willingness to tunnel into the hard places that actually create the openings by which those hard places are drained of their strength. And I I do want to say this as I close. Even the men who ran had to ultimately follow the women's way. They didn't believe them, but they eventually had to follow the women's way and face the pain before they could experience the resurrection fully. You say, what do you mean? Well, think about it. Two males on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus, the resurrected Christ, comes up beside them and he fixes their eyes for they can't see him. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, what could be better than them seeing the resurrection? Well, i tell you what could be worse. Them experiencing resurrection before they experience the fullness of crucifixion. And Jesus fixed their eyes and these two guys... Instead of being enjoined by Jesus and Jesus said, hey guys, don't worry about it, I'm back. Jesus came up and instead of taking messianic form, he took good therapist, spiritual guide form and he looked at them and said, why so heartbroken? Instead of rushing them to the joy of resurrection, he touched the place of their pain and he walked with them and he talked with them about their greatest suffering and pain until finally he would have left them. Still, Jeff, not revealing the resurrection. What about Thomas? He didn't experience the resurrection joy. As a matter of fact, he looked at Jesus and said, I don't believe it. Jesus didn't say, watch this and start glowing. Jesus didn't say, what do you mean you don't believe it? Watch this and do a David Blaine and actually lift up off the ground. Thomas said, I don't believe in a resurrection, and I don't believe you're Jesus. Instead of floating, glowing, and performing a miracle, Jesus said, well, here's what we need to do. And Thomas, like any good man, looked at the pain, and Jesus said, touch it. And when he touched it, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Even good old Simon Peter, the denier, on a seashore meeting the resurrected Christ, Jesus knelt down beside him. And instead of talking about the metaphysics of true resurrection and what it means presently and eternally, Jesus knelt down beside a guy who three times a few hours before had said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't blanking, know him. Jesus kneels down beside him, and instead of talking resurrection power, Jesus whispers, Simon, lovest thou me? And his heart breaks. I do. Simon, lovest thou me? Yes. I do. Simon, yes. Simon, lovest thou me? Lord, you know everything, please. Because before you can experience resurrections, you gotta go back by past failures. Because resurrections are false until you're willing to nobly face crucifixions. So on this Easter, what I wanted to tell you today, instead of doing the normal song and dance and everything's okay, I wanted to tell you that Mary Magdalene and the other Marys are champions of what Easter is all about. I want to tell you today that the question of Easter is what are you doing with your pain? What are you doing with your grief? What are you doing with those memories that haunt you? What are you doing with your failure? What are you doing with that stuff that is gnawing at you always like a cloud hanging over you? What are you doing with your grief, your wounds, your disappointments, your failures, your disillusionment, your hopelessness, your depression, your despair? What are you doing with the death of your job? What are you doing with the vocation that has run out? What are you doing with the death of your dream? What are you doing with the death of your marriage? What are you doing with that divorce, that relationship that has died? What are you doing with the death of your identity? What are you doing with the festering unforgiveness that you daily nurse? Do you ignore it? Do you run from it? Do you just hope it will go away? As Dr. Phil frequently asks, how's that working for you? <laughs> as our friend Eddie and Candy and Lindsley, as our friend Dan Takini incisively says, if it were true, this thing that you're in denial about, if it were true, would you want to know? And as Jesus famously asked, Do you actually want to be well? On this Easter, we are reminded by Mary Magdalene and the other women that there is a better way, there is another way, that the real Easter way is not glib Pollyannic stories about resurrections, but the better way is to take our pain and discomfort, those things that overwhelm us, those things that seem unbearable, and we want to come into a Sunday morning like this and forget about them. The actual true work of the soul is to take these unbearable things and to go bravely headlong down into them. As the upper bound folk have been saying for years, if you can't get out of it, you better get into it. So here's the Easter message today. I believe in resurrection and I believe it's near. But the Easter message is have the talk. Have the talk. Make the call, get the counselor, join the gym, call the doctor, go to the group, get help, sign up for the class, get help. The Easter message is, wake up and go see the resurrected Christ, no. The Easter message is that will take care of itself if you'll go to the tomb. If you'll face the tomb, touch the tomb and see the tomb and step into the tomb, the Easter message is if you will bravely go to the place of tears, you will find there ultimately the place of laughter. But tombs are just birthing chambers for resurrection. And the thing that takes a tomb and turns it into a womb, the thing that transforms the tomb, is when you like the women get up and say, we gotta go face this down. And there is, not, there is not a place in this world that I would less rather go than that place. But there is not a place in this world that I need go more. And it is in that place, brothers and sisters, that resurrections appear and happen. Can you say amen? amen. Would you bow your heads and close with me as the communion servers prepare? as they tend the Lord's Supper for us, that I hope that we could see this blood and this bread differently, more richly today. On this Easter, it is our prayer that we will recognize that we are all the body of Christ creation is the body of Christ. This blood is ours. This bread of brokenness is ours. As we prepare our hearts and as they tender this body and blood for us, we are not vampires and we are not cannibals. This is a rich and deep and meaningful and enlightened, sacred thing that even now we are growing into its full meaning. Take the bloodiness and take the brokenness. It is in the bloodiness and the brokenness that the wholeness comes. And after seeing the tomb and touching the tomb and standing in the tomb, they turned and they went away from that place and immediately Jesus appeared and said, hello, ladies. Hello. And they lay at his feet, and healing came. This is a day of resurrection. Be brave now with this blood and this bread, be brave with this wine.